Hi, I am Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short, personal, real true stories where we explore the idea that truth can be stranger than fiction. In this week's episode, entitled Free Fall, I share the stories of three spectacular falls. Count yourself lucky if you never find yourself in one of these situations. Freefall. With the baby boomers reaching old age, there's a lot of talk in the senior citizen press about falls. There seems to be some truth to the belief that falling at a ripe old age and breaking one's hip signals the beginning of a long downward slide toward death. Being a baby boomer myself, I'm trying to avoid this demise. Take ladders, for example. I never climb a ladder in sandals, never stretch to reach something far from the top of a ladder, and of course, never stand on the top rung. In my art studio, I have removed all the extension cords that crisscross the floor. Lastly, I slow way down when traversing a room in the dark. I yearn for the days when I could really take a fall, bounce back, and walk away. What follows is a review of three of my all-time favorite falls. Install a repairman, got reno, and lover boy. I hope you enjoy them. Install a repairman. My high-level AT&T executive dad got me a summer job working for the telephone company. Check out episode two, Pipe Dreams, to hear more about him. This was back when AT&T had a monopoly on telephone service. I was assigned to a garage of workers who were called installer repairmen. All of them were blue-collar and disliked me immediately because I was a college kid and also their boss's boss's boss was my father. The whole gang took great pleasure in my screw-ups and mistakes. Back then, telephone poles were called blackjacks, wooden poles covered with a black, tar-like waterproofing called creosote. They carried wires strung between them with both phone wires below and electric wires above. To climb a pole, a phone man wore a vertical metal brace strapped to each leg. These braces had a sharp diagonal metal spike at their base. To climb a pole, you simply planted one spike above the other and ascended to the top. The macho guy who taught me couldn't help showing off. From the top of the pole, he disengaged the spikes, dropped the length of the pole, then slammed both spikes into the wood just before hitting the ground. He dared me to try. When I declined, he called me a pussy. Prior to climbing, you were instructed to do two things. First, push a screwdriver into the pole at ground level to check for termites. Secondly, use what was called a B-voltage tester, touching it to the creosote to see if electric wires above were discharging electricity down the pole into the ground. I was taught to do both of these, but like my fellow workers, I soon ignored the rules. At the top of one of my first solo climbs with my spikes, 
I strapped myself in to do some work on a junction box. As soon as I began to work, the poles started to tip sideways. It was hollowed out by termites. I quickly unstrapped myself and jumped to a nearby garage roof while the pole crashed to the ground and broke into pieces, accompanied by lots of electrical sparks and smoking. Losing my footing, I slid down the roof, grabbing at the gutter, which broke off, and I fell backwards into a mess of flashing smoking wires, splintered wood, and the jagged remains of the gutter. Landing on my back, I braced for the worse, death by electrocution. Miraculously, I was completely unharmed, but I did cause a local power outage and the loss of phone service to a multi-block area. Back at the garage, the guys were completely ecstatic about my misfortune. One shouted out directly into my face, too bad you didn't fry, college boy, and everybody laughed. (laughs) After that, I was reassigned to a phone company office building to operate a first-generation Xerox machine, which just made one copy at a time. When I refused to wear a necktie to this important position, I was summarily fired. My father was very proud. Gut ran out. My second wife, a psychotherapist, and I got a tip about a second-floor seven-room apartment that was up for sale in the West Village on Barrow Street. It overlooked a little square with a Cherry Lane Theater across from it. Very quaint, very quiet, and very cheap. Why so cheap, you ask? Because a cat person who had more than 20 cats died of AIDS in the apartment and wasn't discovered until the bodies began to smell. The realtor placed a perfumed hanky over her nose before she used the keys to open the door. Inside, the smell was overwhelming, but almost as bad was the overall condition of the apartment. The former owner had really let things go for years, and it was a squalid mess. Used fast food containers, empty wine bottles, dusty newspapers, and dirty laundry. And listing the place as a seven-room apartment was a gross overstatement. Three of the rooms were so tiny, they couldn't even accommodate a bed. The good news was that it was a floor-through with three bright, sunny front windows overlooking the charming little village square. The asking price was 135000 This being the West Village, we offered 145000 and the apartment was ours. And so the renovation began. My wife tried to help, but her forte was psychology, not construction. So our disagreements began, too. I started by collecting cardboard boxes, filling box after box with all the crap in the apartment. Slowly in the front of the room, a wall of boxes grew. Edgar Allan Poe's cask of Amontillado writ large. Next, I tore into the kitchen. The electrical service had been turned off, so I got the next-door neighbor to let me run an extension cord, which powered a construction light, which hung from the ceiling in the center of the room. The walls were ripped out, the ceilings pulled down, and old asbestos-covered wires and rusty pipes were pulled out. The floor was left till last. Over the next few days, they were deep with demolition debris, and my old ladder at the center of the room was surrounded by a huge bird's nest of cracked studs with lots of sharp, rusty nails, cut-off pipes, crumbled plaster, and broken lath. At this point, my wife rarely ever came to the apartment anymore. The mess was driving her crazy. I really got into my job, working faster and faster. At one point, I was up a ladder using a hammer and a flat chisel to lop off some of the nails that I couldn't pull out. I stretched one leg out 
to step to the old rusty kitchen sink. As I did so, it started to crumble, and I windmilled my arms in an effort to keep my balance. As I flailed, I let go of the chisel, which spun upwards while I fell backwards onto the massive sharp nails, broken glass, and other hazards below me. At the exact instant that my back made contact, the spinning chisel came down and severed the extension cord. Pitch black. Nothing. I'm dead, I thought to myself. But then as my eyes began to adjust to the darkness, I decided, hey, maybe I'm not dead. Maybe I'm just paralyzed with fear and in shock. I lifted myself up and out of the rubble, being careful not to get punctured, and found myself happily alive. A true miracle, which of course, I didn't share with my wife. As the renovation continued and our space looked better and better, our relationship looked more and more like a demolition site. The final finished apartment was a beautiful one bedroom with a large front room and a huge kitchen. We moved in together and things quickly deteriorated further. Finally one night, in the midst of a particularly nasty fight, my wife screamed, if you don't like it, there's the door. With that, I stood up and walked out, moved into my art studio and never returned. In the end, after all my blood, sweat and tears invested in the place, I offered it to her if she assumed our tiny $35,000 mortgage. She accepted, and we went our separate ways. It's now worth $1.75 million. That's the real miracle, and I completely missed out on it. Lover Boy. In reading what follows, please keep in mind that I was in my early 20s when I prided myself on being fearless and able to walk up to almost anyone and strike up a conversation, and if interested, a friendship. This skill was particularly helpful in meeting women. In Boston one winter's day, while traveling on a crowded Green Line trolley, holding onto the same pole as me, was a petite woman in a big fur coat, sunglasses, and a red banana-type head covering. She was wearing a great perfume and smelled wonderful. I found myself very attracted to her, even though I couldn't really see what she looked like. I didn't hesitate to start a conversation and even got her to laugh, at which point I was dazzled by her dazzling smile and intrigued by her exotic Latin accent. Given that she was getting off in a few stops, I asked for her phone number. She offered to take mine instead, writing it down on a tiny piece of paper, which she put in her pocket. She told me her name was Maria, promising to call as she exited the train. She stayed in my mind for a few days, but there was no call, and before long, her memory faded. Fast forward to spring, almost six months later, and I received a call. A lovely voice with a Latin accent asked sweetly if this was Greg, and I was overjoyed. She explained that the little piece of paper had disappeared into a tiny hole in her pocket. She'd only just found it when she was repairing the lining in preparation for putting her coat into storage. Would I like to come over for dinner? Absolutely. She gave me her address with a giggle, and we agreed that I would show up to her apartment in Cambridge the next night at 7. Her place was the upstairs apartment in a duplex. As I stood on the porch holding my flowers and wine while I rang the bell, I could see the stairs coming down from her apartment, 
through the front door window. I have to admit that since she was all bundled up when we met, I was hoping against hope that she would be as attractive as her smile. The first thing I saw at the top of the stairs was some stiletto high heels, then the bare skin of her lower leg. Next came her tight toreador pants, covering her beautifully curved and perfectly proportioned lower body. Then, a shirt tightly tied at the waist. Her long, luxuriant dark hair hung down on either side of her lovely bosom. And lastly came her beautiful face and that great smile. Damn, I said to myself, have I lucked out. Entering her place, there was a wonderful aroma of cooking. She'd prepared paella before my arrival. After I presented her my wine and flowers, she sat me down in the living room. Looking around the white, minimally furnished space, I couldn't help but notice there was a series of large, black-and-white fashion photographs of Maria. They were very professional and beautifully presented, but perplexing. How strange, narcissistic even, to decorate one's place in such a fashion. After a perfect meal, we talked and teased about our first meeting. She sat very close to me on the couch and gave me a long, full-lipped first kiss. I was ecstatic, but also a little bit wary. This all seemed maybe a little bit too perfect. In her bedroom, she made a ritual of undressing me, laying me down on the bed, then made quite a show of undressing herself. As she climbed on top, and we quickly progressed into total abandon, she suddenly froze, sat up, and listened. God, I think that's my husband. He's not supposed to be back till tomorrow. She jumped up and gathered my clothes, pushing me toward the backyard window, which she pulled open, ordering me in a whisper to climb down the ivy-covered trellis, which was a full two stories tall. Once on the trellis, I looked down into a dimly lit, unkept, and overgrown back garden. Lost in the deep weeds at its center was a vine-covered birdbath, surrounded by an equally weed-choked, low, decorative wrought iron fence. Amongst the weeds, I could also see some wrought iron lawn furniture as well. Just at the moment that Maria closed the window, there was a sharp cracking sound at the top of the trellis, completely separated from the building. I continued holding on as I fell in an arc into the center of the disheveled backyard. Fuck me, I called out as I landed on my back between the low fence and the wrought iron furniture. The impact took my breath away and I briefly blacked out. Awakening to the sound of Maria's opening the window, she called down in a tinkling laugh, false alarm. Back upstairs in her bedroom, after stripping me down to inspect for wounds, she said reverently, God was on your side tonight, Mia Moore. She then undressed, climbed on top of me, and we began again, right where we left off, hardly missing a beat. Sometimes an unlucky guy can still get lucky. The Compulsive Storyteller is written and narrated by me, Greg Lefebvre, and co-produced with Peter Kokoma, who's also made our theme song. If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And also, if you could leave a review, that would be fantastic. 
Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you don't like this one, the next one will be another story. The characters and events portrayed in this podcast are based on my truth, with some names and facts changed for privacy. All conversations and dialogues are based on my best memory, but are not word-for-word recreations.